Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew Freeman and Jen Bailey. Thanks, Ray. This is the Ray Winderlich podcast. Welcome to episode 12 for season nine. This episode was recorded on Tuesday, the 3rd of September for broadcast on the 18th of September, 2019. This episode is sponsored by Triple Byte. That's B-Y-T-E, Byte. I am Jen Bailey here with our now teenage endowed podcast host, Drew Freeman. Thanks, Jen. 13 years old as of this day of the recording and has not gotten off the switch since I saw him unwrap it after his school today. Joining us on this episode is Gabriel Peel. Gabriel started his Android career working on Android Auto. He then spent three years on Android at Airbnb, where he worked on many projects, including Lottie Android and Mavericks. He's now a senior Android engineer at Tonal. In his spare time, he skis and plays Ultimate Frisbee. In this episode, Gabriel will discuss Mavericks. Then in the second half, I will talk about my favorite Jetpack feature, Navigation Architecture Component. Gabriel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on the show. I, I had to ask you, I, I said it offline, but I, I, I'll say it again. I, I had to ask you if there was something you did besides engineering and code, because we get a lot of young programmers who code and code, and in their spare time they code, and, and it's good to hear you get outside and do things that don't involve a computer, unless you play a very, very bizarre digital game of Ultimate Frisbee. <laughs> You know, there's a uh, Ultra Frisbee's. A, it's a big world out there, and uh, I live in San Francisco, and San Francisco happens to have one of the, the largest communities of ultimate players. Oh, don't uh, say that too world, loudly. Really. We'll lose the caterwauls to San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I am not the uh, the Android expert on this show, and you're going to be talking about MVRX or Mavericks. So, can you give us, for starters? The, the bird's eye view of what Mavericks is. Yeah, so, so I've been working on Android development for about six years now. And the, the thing that really matters when you're building an Android app is you're building a product. You're building something that somebody's going to use. And all of the frameworks and tools and libraries are essentially just a means to an end to build an app. And unfortunately, making an Android app is often more complex than you feel like it should be to build a simple product or feature or even a complex one. And over the years, there have been a number of libraries that have helped make Android development simpler for simple cases as well as complex cases. So Mavericks is a library that me and a coworker developed at Airbnb that builds on top of some of the newer Jetpack libraries that Google built uh, to make Android simpler and extended them for a number of new use cases to make Android development easier for everybody. Now, is this project now open source? Yeah, so Mavericks is open source. We open sourced it just over a year ago. And it's sort of funny, actually. Uh, it was something that we built at Airbnb. And you know, after having some success with Lottie, we, from a fa fairly early on with the project, we wanted to build it with the potential of open sourcing it. But we only wanted to do so if it was good enough to be open sourced and something we'd actually want to maintain. Uh, and it turns out that we loved it so much, and it got kind of to the point where uh, I knew I was leaving Airbnb to move to Tonal, a fitness startup. And I mean, frankly, I, I really just wanted to use it myself after I left, uh, in addition to letting everyone else use it. And so it was uh, half of it was for the community and half of it was sort of selfish in that 
Uh, it is my favorite waiter at Android apps, and uh, I needed to get it out there so I could use it. I know I've, I've personally written enough frameworks working for different companies that I've often thought, you know, if there's any way that I could just take this chunk of code that I've just spent the past three years working on so that I can use it again in other projects, that would be fantastic. But I guess the question is, what was it about Mavericks that stood out that that made it not just yet another framework? The past two years, Google started this series of libraries called Jetpack. And Jetpack builds on top of the Android framework, and it smooths out a lot of things around the Android lifecycle and saving data. Uh, but there are some, there were certain things that we saw, certain patterns that we saw over and over again. And so at Airbnb, I was on a team of a few core infrastructure engineers working on the core infrastructure of the Android app. And we were supporting about 75 product engineers who are writing features on top of the infrastructure that we built. And in doing so, we saw a lot of code, like a lot, a lot of code, uh, hundreds of screens worth of code, both in Android and React Native and iOS. Um, and there were certain patterns that we saw people doing over and over again. For example, something like fetching asynchronous data. It's such a common action, especially on mobile. Pretty much everything you fetch is either asynchronous from the network or from a database. And like 99% of all the data that you fetch is going to be asynchronous. And there are these little patterns, like fetching that data, you have a loading state and a failure state. And so you, you see one of two things. You see someone either do it right, where they have all three straight, all three states mapped out, and it creates a lot of boilerplate, right? Let's say you fetch it and it fails, and then you refetch it. You have to like remember to clear the failure state in the success handler the next time it succeeds, uh, and you need to wire it all up to the user interface. And uh, I mean, frankly, either it's a lot of work to do that, or half the time you see people just decide that it's not worth it, and they end up just totally skipping out on loading states and error states. And unfortunately, that creates a bad user experience. And so one of the core things that Maverick simplifies is the ability to fetch asynchronous data and map it to a simple state that, that automatically handles things like loading and error so that you don't have to manually wire all those states together. So we took a collection of a few simple use cases like that and added that sort of functionality on top of Android Jetpack to make it easier for everybody. Great. And so with Jetpack having the new view model um, pattern, how does this improve on that, on that? Or how does it compare to the existing Jetpack libraries for architecture? Right. So Mavericks builds on top of Jetpack view models. And view models are great. They essentially solve a major pain point in the Android lifecycle. And for those of you less familiar with the Android lifecycle, every screen in Android has a number of different states. And uh, each state exists for a reason. A screen can be created, and then it could be, it comes all the way to fully visible and interactive with the user. But then there's other states when it's maybe partially obscured, or other states when you rotate the screen, or yet more states when a screen goes onto the back stack when you navigate further into your app. And it's quite complex. In fact, if you just Google Android Lifecycle flowchart, you'll see exactly how complex it can be. We could include the diagram in the show notes because there's about, what, about a dozen different 
um, states that an activity can be in at any given time. <laughs> Though for the first yeah. time, I think it'd be best to omit something from the show notes so as not to threaten the listeners of the show. <laughs> well, the beauty of it is that you don't have to worry about it as much anymore. And so really, like this life cycle was built all around the views, right? What's currently on screen? And when you're building an Android app, there's actually two halves of your app. There's what's visible to the user, and then there's all of your business logic and data. So what View Models does is it, it creates a new entity called a View Model that's attached to the logical lifecycle of your screen rather than the view lifecycle. So one example is when you rotate the screen. Android completely destroys and recreates your screen so that you can get new resources for a landscape or a portrait orientation after, after you rotate. But that creates a lot of complexity if you're fetching data within a view. That means that you have to somehow refetch that same data or store it somewhere temporarily so that you can get it back because your view is completely destroyed and recreated. Now with the view model, they, they've, at Jetpack View Models creates uh, some APIs so that you essentially say, hey, I want the view model for my screen. And if you've never fetched it before, it will give you a new view model. But if you rotate or come back from Backstack or something like that, it'll return that same instance again. So it's essentially tied to the logical lifecycle of that screen. And then your view, instead of having to do all the data fetching itself, it just subscribes to state on the view model itself. Now, Jetpack view models are really great for giving you that place to put that data, but it doesn't provide a lot of helpers and tools for actually structuring that data within the view model. So what they have created is something called live data in which you have uh, individual properties for individual pieces of state for a screen. And so you could, for example, to my earlier example, you could have loading and error and success values if you're fetching asynchronous data as individual properties on your view model. Now, you no longer have to worry about refetching that data or persisting it anywhere for cases like rotation, but you do still have to manage that stream of data and map it to each of those properties individually and then subscribe to them all from your view. What Mavericks does is it takes all of your state object and it says, hey, as you have view model, you emit a single state class. So now you take your screen and instead of being a bunch of different individual properties, you create a single state class that represents your screen. And now your view model owns that state class. Whenever mm -hmm. your state class changes, your view re-renders based on that single state class. And then we can provide some helpers to fetch data and then map it to different things within state. That is great. So it kind of consolidates what would be a bunch of different views subscribing to the data into one object. Exactly. If you're familiar with uh, React, for example, in the JavaScript world, you have a single invalidate function, a render function. And render is called anytime state or props for a React component changes. If any, any component changes, just recalls render. And then it, it re-renders the whatever changed on the screen. Or you omit essentially the, the shadow DOM of the components that you want. And then that diffs and sends changes to, to the DOM. I'm feeling late to the game here because I was thinking while you were talking about the, the, the single state was going, this is sounding very reactive and it's its nature. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that was part of the inspiration behind Mavericks, really. Uh, it, some of you may be familiar with our forays into React Native at Airbnb. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was involved with some of the work there, both spinning it up, maintaining it, and then also the decision to sunset it. 
But in doing so, even though it, it got us a lot and even though we're not using it anymore, we all learned a ton in the process. And the, the concept that React has pioneered in terms of making a, a tree of components that are reactive to state is such a powerful concept. And the reason React is so popular is because it's been proven to scale. It mm-hmm. works really well for small apps and it works really well for huge apps. And it's one of the first frameworks in which massive apps are not that much more complex than small apps. There's just a lot more simple things. And that's a, anything that allows you to do that is a really powerful concept. Yeah, it's really seeming like 2019 is really becoming the year of reactive programming for most languages. It's really getting the spotlight uh, on both of the major platforms. You're seeing it in a lot of Kotlin frameworks. You're seeing it now in a lot of Swift frameworks. It's just really seeming to be finally in the limelight. Yeah, and it's, it's not a coincidence that you're seeing this all at once. React has been around for a few years now, and... But there have been some barriers making it challenging to implement on mobile until recently, uh, namely the language. In fact, uh, up until recently, Android was almost entirely Java. You could use Kotlin, but it wasn't endorsed by Google until recently. And with Kotlin are a number of new and really, really powerful language features that enable you to write new kinds of APIs and write things in a really elegant way that wasn't really possible before. In fact, things like type receivers allow you to create entire DSLs within Kotlin. It allows you to write things that resemble a component and having first-class lambdas is such a powerful feature. And it's really the ability to write these, these kinds of APIs that have enabled an entirely new class of frameworks. In fact, you know, at Airbnb, prior to the current iteration of Mavericks that we have, we had a version that was Java-based because we had not yet migrated to Kotlin. And trying to achieve the same exact concepts, the, the final API that we came up with was so verbose, it was not something that we would have open-sourced, frankly. And just the simple ability to move to Kotlin and take advantage of all of its language features enabled us to make it 10x better than we could have with Java. So Kotlin's now, of course, the, a first-class language on the Android platform. Is Now, my understanding is that Mavericks itself is pretty much Kotlin only? Yeah, so that was, that was a, big, a big decision that we made with Mavericks. And it's one of the things that separates it from Jetpack, actually. So the Jetpack APIs are pretty good, but because they're generic and for, they should be able to be used by anybody, they are written with, a, with Java in mind. And in fact, the core library is written in Java. But at Airbnb, we had fully committed to Kotlin, and we've, we saw it as an opportunity to build the best possible APIs by going Kotlin only. And frankly, we haven't really looked back from that decision. It hasn't, certainly hasn't held us back at Airbnb or Tonal because we're writing pretty much 100% Kotlin now. Right. And I love how Kotlin as a language does enable those deeper features, and it's mainly the first-class lambdas. And um, what are some other Kotlin features you leveraged? Yeah, so property delegates are a really interesting language feature. In Java, there's something called the bean pattern, where you might have a field, let's say like an, an int count, and you often make something called a getter and a setter like a get count and a set count function. Because if you ever want to add any extra functionality, like maybe analytics, for example, 
You need a place to do that. And you can't do that within a field. A field is just the value. So you often wrap every single field with a getter and a setter so that you have the option of putting additional functionality there in the future. And it worked for a lot of years, and it's one of the things that contributed to huge Java classes, lots of boilerplate. And so with Kotlin, they, they really simplified that. When you create something that looks like a field in Kotlin, it's actually a little bit more powerful, and it's called a property. And so you say, if you say uh, int i at the class level in Kotlin, it's not just creating that field, it's actually creating sort of a hidden getter and setter behind the scenes. If you were to decompile the Kotlin bytecode, you'd actually see that it is actually creating a getter and setter behind the scenes, but it can abstract that away for you. But then you can actually leverage that to your advantage. So if you've ever written Kotlin and seen the by keyword that says that, hey, what comes after this? It's Kotlin, I want to delegate the getter and setter for this property to this class. And this class implements the getter and setter instead of having to implement a little getter and setter in your own class. So we've been able to leverage this to, for example, allow you to get or uh, create a new view model. Uh, normally, if you just instantiate a view model inside of your fragment, you would get a new instance every time you get a new instance of your fragment. So if you rotate the screen, new view model. Uh, well, Jetpack provides something called view model providers. So in on create of your fragment, you would say view model providers dot of this fragment, give me a view model or create a view model for this of this class. And it's all right, but like that's additional boilerplate, right? You've already declared some sort of class level property that you want a view model of this type. Why do you need to then go and like instantiate it somewhere else? So by using Kotlin delegates, we were able to wrap all that up into one single delegate. So you say my view model, give it a type, and then you just say by fragment view model or by activity view model for an activity scoped one. And with one line of code, it does all of the work under the hood for you. It even then subscribes to changes and then calls Mavericks' equivalent of React's render, which is called invalidate. Uh, so it does a lot of work for you under the hood. So that's another way we were able to reduce boilerplate. In our first half, we've been talking to Gabriel Peel about the Mavericks library. When we come back, I will talk about my favorite component, the navigation component. And now some words from our sponsor. That's Triple Byte, Byte, B-Y-T. The RightWonderLick.com podcast will be right back. But first, a message from our sponsor. This RayWenderlich.com podcast is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on phone screens, take-home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your interest or your cover letters. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies, from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you get to go straight to the final interviews with the companies on their platform. It's like the common app for software engineers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. And I can appreciate that. Being in the industry for 35 years, I'm entirely self-taught. My undergraduate study was in theater, and I left school to do my first job. So I don't carry a bachelor's, no bachelor's of arts, no bachelor's of science. And that's the 
one thing I'm often trying to hide or misdirect on my resume. With TripleByte, they care more about the coding experience that I have and not worry about that one little fact. Apply now at triplebyte.com slash Ray. That's triplebyte.com, byte, B-Y-T-E, as in 8 bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. And again, a special thanks to Triple Byte, that's B-Y-T-E, for sponsoring this episode and all episodes this season of the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. We're back with Section 2, and Jen is going to be bringing us up to speed on her favorite jetpack feature, the navigation architecture component. So Jen, give us the lowdown. What is it? Great. So I would compare the navigation component to Android is like a storyboard in iOS. It is a way of navigating between activities or fragments. Um, and there's a visual editor included with Android Studio uh, with that component that allows you to physically drag those views onto the screen and make actions or connections between them. And then you can define passing values and define some of that behavior, such as animations, all in a nice visual editor. So if you've used Xcode, it'll feel like a familiar feature. It reminds me of when there was constraint layout versus auto layout. Now someone from the iOS world can use constraint layout and kind of feel like some of the tools are familiar. And this is now, this is an add-on from Jetpack? Yes. So this is part of the Jetpack. Uh, it's an architecture component from the new library. And when I saw it, I got really excited because um, before you would just have to declare an activity and declare an intent and you would start those activities in your code. Um, and you didn't have anywhere a visual of the flow of the program. So a lot of times I was drawing a storyboard on pen and paper and having to keep track of that in my code. Like, when am I gonna launch an activity? Or when am I gonna launch it as part of an intent? And so uh, navigation component was first announced at Google I.O. 2018, and it has since become uh, the standard. So when I was looking at Google's blog, it said, today we are introducing the navigation component as a framework for structuring your in-app UI with a focus on making a single activity app the preferred architecture. So as I understand it, um, it's now the preferred architecture. And I try to use the most modern um, things that I can. I like the bleeding edge, so I like to tr to stick with everything new, adopt it as soon as it's the recommendation. <laughs> and especially teaching, you know, you want people to leave with uh, the most modern skills that that you can, understanding the modern vocabulary. And so I tried this first last spring. And uh, it was a little buggy, and I uh, I didn't have too much trouble with it, though. So it was a little buggy, and now they have some more stable versions out. Um, and it's built right into the Android Studio after version 3.2. Now, they say they recommend you use it with the single... Uh, with the single uh, template, but does it work with the other ones? Um, yeah, I believe you can have multiple activities. So I think uh, the single activity app, if I understand that pattern, is to have like one activity 
and you're going to load fragments inside of that uh, so that it's not multiple activities anymore. That's the navigation that I prefer to use. So I like, I really like that pattern. It's easy to implement and then you're just creating fragments. Um, and I avoided fragments like the plague, I will admit it. So this can, <laughs> I tried to avoid them everywhere possible, even though when they were uh, first out, I used them because I thought that that's what everyone would use always. And then I started to avoid them for a while. And now with these newer reactive frameworks and components, I'm back to using fragments. Um, it would sure be a lot easier. It is a lot easier with stuff like navigation component and Mavericks uh, when the state is managed and you don't have that crazy life cycle, then there's nothing really to be afraid of <laughs> with the fragments. I mean, one of the other advantages of having a single activity app is that it really allows you to have full control over the view hierarchy. Uh, an activity is ultimately backed by a, a new window at the operating system level within Android. And if you switch from one activity to a new activity, it's this. there's a lot of underlying process that happens within the OS to take a new activity, get a new window, animate windows. There's, there's a lot under the hood there. And if you wanna do things like shared element transitions. It requires work in the Android platform itself. So it behaves a little bit differently in different versions of Android. And uh, there, there are bugs and um, there's, there's a lot of overhead there. Uh, but ultimately, within your app, it's great when everything is just a single view hierarchy. Because even if, if it doesn't do exactly what you want, you have all the views available to you, so you have full control. Uh, this A similar thing happened a few years back when Android moved the uh, the toolbar from being part of the activity Chrome into just a view that you drop in. So it used to be part of the actual theme for your activity, and it was stuck at the top, and it, it, it interacted with the Android operating system. But if you needed to do things like have it move or translate or change in any way, you were kind of stuck. And so there were libraries that helped you move it into the view hierarchy and do things with it. But uh, ultimately, Google is moving in a direction where everything is just a view in one view hierarchy, and then you can manipulate it and work with it however you want. And you're basically just swapping in views and swapping out views or transitioning or animating views to get your transitions throughout a single activity life, life cycle. Exactly. And that's ultimately what a fragment is. When uncreate view is called, you return a view, and that's just a normal view hierarchy view. And that gets inflated into its container, which is another view. Same with the fragment that you're going to or exiting from. That is excellent. Excellent to understand. And um, it's what's great about fragments. And so to use the uh, navigation controller, it's important to understand like some basic navigation principles. And I don't design apps every day, so I went through these just to kind of um, guide my mind on, you know, how should I design the navigation in my app? I'm embarking on a new app so that I can practice all these new features. <laughs> and so at the starting point was navigation. How do I want to go between these views? Um, so one, uh, one navigation principle is a fixed start destination. So like all programs, an app is going to need a starting point or a launcher fragment or activity. Um, so you have to pick the first one and you can designate that in the visual editor. Um, and then 
you have to think about the state of the navigation at any given time. So that is managed by the back stack. And I heard um, Gabriel use that term. If you're not familiar with the back stack, it's a stack. And if you're not familiar with stacks, which I know most people are, but um, think of the lunch trays in the lunchrooms that you can push trays onto the top, but trays don't come out of the bottom. So the first one on the stack is going to be the first one or the last one on is going to be the first one off. LIFO! <laughs> yes, I always get those confused. Um, but as I navigate through the different fragments or activities in my program, the one that I just left is or I'm just going to is going to get pushed onto the back stack. And so when I hit the back button, we can pop that stack and go back one. And that's how you can keep track of the order of the views that you've visited. Um, so navigating to a new destination, we'll push it on top of the back stack. Um, another navigation principle is that the up and back buttons uh, behave identically, that the back buttons at the top of the screen and the um, up or the back button is in the system navigation, excuse me, the up button is at the top right. So I always get those confused, but those should have uh, the same behavior of going back um, a destination. Um, and then, so it, the difference there is the up button should not exit the app. However, the other button can. So they both navigate backwards the same, but one can, the up button can exit, the other one should not. Um, and then deep linking can sometimes simulate manual navigation. So what deep linking is, is you use a URI and that can um, navigate to a specific point in an app or in, an, in your own app or another, if I understand that correctly. So I also play with deep linking with um, Google Actions as well, because that's a cool up and coming thing to add to your app. Deep linking is just a wonderful way to find your way into an app from another app and just get to a specific, a specific place in there uh, uh, rather than having to have the user navigate all the way down. Yes. And what's really cool about um, the navigation component with deep linking is it'll create a convincing back stack for that. So if I deep link into an app and I'm viewing maybe the detail view of something from a list, it'll have the list view in the back stack. It'll automatically um, synthesize that back stack for you. So that is pretty cool. Is there a way to control whether it creates that synthetic backstack for you? That's a really good question. I didn't come across that information. It does say it replaces it. So if you had the app open before, um, if you deep link back into the app and a new record is showing, the original backstack will be replaced with the synthesized one. So I did not notice. I'd have to refer back. I think that'd be a good one to solve with an experiment. I don't know if that's in the documentation. <laughs> no, that's an interesting one. I'm being really, really bad with my new iOS app because nine times out of 10, when you go back to the app, it goes back to the home page and just starts you at the top of the stack and doesn't actually link you four or five levels into the stack. or Remember that you were four or five levels into the stack. Just like, yeah, start again. You aren't noticing that. And you are allowed to manually manage your back stack in your app. So um, you're not stuck with uh, with just the newest destination. Um, an example would be like an app that has a web view in it. 
Maybe you would want your back button to visit the last page they visited instead of the last screen of information they were on. So you could, or that's overriding the, the behavior of the button, but you can have leverage some control over the back stack and have it be in the order you want. And there's different features for that. Um, I just recently am trying to publish an iOS app and I forgot to put a back button on a form and that's the one last little, <laughs> the one last little rejection. Yeah, unfortunately you don't get that automatic back button that you get on Android <laughs> and I, I have written many pages where I've gone into the new functionality and then I test it out and realize, well, I'm stuck here now. I have no way <laughs> yeah. to back out of that. I got to go put a UX element in because, well, we have no choice. We have to put the UX element in for backwards. Yeah. I had to laugh a little bit because I think that's the last detail before the app will publish. So it got my app rejected because I was like, well, where's the back button? <laughs> <laughs> but um, so how do, how do you implement the navigation into an app? That's a question that I'll talk about a little bit, too. Like, how does all this work? Um, the first step is in Android Studio, you add a graph. Um, so there's a way that you can add an XML resource and it'll make a navigation folder in your resources folder. And it'll put a graph in there, which is essentially an XML file that contains your destinations and your actions. So your destinations are, are fragments or activities. Um, and your actions in iOS, we call those segues, but that's the, the okay. uh, link between them. So it's instead of um, UI views and segues, we have destinations and actions. Um, and so, yeah, actions are the logical connections between your destinations. And you can define the paths through your app with those. Um, you can view it in the editor as XML, or there's a visual editor that looks just like a storyboard. So you can see it and click and drag. Um, you don't have to hold command when you click, though. So to create an action, <laughs> I'm making fun of Xcode a little bit. You can just click and drag. Hashtag, I love similar. you, Xcode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in Xcode, you have to command drag um, some stuff. Actually, I'm curious. Now, it's because uh, one of the interesting things about these uh, navigation graphs is that they have a UI and they're backed by XML. Now, do you find yourself using the, the XML or the navigation graph UI more often? I take the same approach I take with layouts, too. I oftentimes will use the visual editor to be quicker, but I um, tend to do most of it at the XML level. And I always check the XML after I use a visual editor um, to help myself learn. So I always and also to look for any mistakes that the visual editor, not so much mistakes, but maybe misinterpretation interpretations. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I love that. I liked I like that approach to design and development all the way back using Dreamweaver, where it was so nice to be able to visually do your web page a little bit, but you had utter control. The code is that lowest level where you can finesse it exactly the way you want it. With the uh, with the graphic, you're always going to be approximating and, and things will look good. But then when you go down to the code level, that's reflected, that's when you can say that that's the exact finesse that I want. Yeah, and once I know what I'm doing, like with layouts, I've, I'm very familiar with those. Then I prefer the XML um, because it's so quick with code completion 
um, that I'm actually quicker typing it in. So, but um, when I'm first starting out, I usually drag and drop the controls on there, then go look at the XML and see what that looks like. Um, but yeah, it's sometimes faster for me to type. <laughs> I really like how in Android, I love the point you brought up, Drew, about it all being one XML file. Uh, that's something I really enjoy about Android. That might be why I'm more in the Android side of things than iOS. Uh, I love how that's piecemeal because um, have you ever deleted your storyboard? <laughs> that's a horrible fate. Oh, I, I've... I, now, I, I have to admit, I also am one of those crazed... I need to get, and I need to get often and get small. So, but I have more than more than my share of uh, storyboard check-ins because you will just look at the storyboard, and Xcode will make a modification to it. Yeah. <laughs> so I and I will have many. I have many check-ins that are basically my navigation has Xcode drift in it, where I have not actually changed anything. I just made the mistake of looking at it. I like that Xcode drift. <laughs> yeah. You look at it the wrong way. I've accidentally, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't look at me in that tone of voice. <laughs> <laughs> they have a life of their own. So um, I, I think it has some great convenient features and it's very usable, but Android makes me feel more in control with those XML files underneath. Yeah, so once you've, uh, in your graph, you have to add your destinations and um, those have some attributes. So there's a type, whether it's gonna be a fragment, an activity, um, or a custom class, uh, it has to have a label. Um, and then of course an ID. So each destination is gonna have a, an ID and you can have a class associated with that. Um, and when you're adding your designate your destinations, you have to designate one as the starting uh, destination. So back in the manifest, we uh, designate our starting launcher activity as well. So in your graph, you have to say which is your starting destination. Um, and there's a little house button for that. So like a home destination. And once you've got those laid out on the screen or in your XML, you can start connecting them with actions. So that's just a simple click and drag, uh, no key press required. Um, and you also can have IDs with those, obviously. And um, it, they also contain a destination of where they're going. So that's all very simple to lay out in the editor to get the actions and the destinations all connected that way. Jen, that was really very helpful information. You know that I'm working on the iOS app that I, my, my most requested feature has been porting it to Android. And you know that I've been completely daunted with getting into Android, but hearing the, the way that the, the arc, the, the nav component works really does feel like being at home with, with storyboards and I think since mine is very storyboard driven that that may be very much of an assistance to me if you if you want a, a blueprint with navigation components in Mavericks um, there's in the Mavericks repo there's a module called dogs and it's a fake dog adoption app oh cool great I saw you demoing that in your in your talk so the new one that uses data binding and it uses navigation components oh that is cool I will take a look at that Gabriel, really, thank you for being on the show. All the information 
seeing yet again that I'm pretty sure that that reactive is the way of the future for all of us. Maverick sounds like it is just an incredible, even first step for some folks. And I, again, want to thank you for being on the show tonight. And thank you so much for having me. It's really been a pleasure. That's going to wrap things up for this episode. We're going to be back in another few weeks. Until then, that's going to wrap things up for the Ray Wenderlich podcast. We thank Triple Byte, that's Byte, B-Y-T-E, for sponsoring this and every episode this season. But in the meantime, it's back to the Emerald Castle. Ray, back to you. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.